I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour. In the summer of 1965, the author Linda Rosenkrantz had an idea to record her friends over the course of a summer. She made hundreds of hours of tape, spent a year transcribing it all, and then worked on an edit which ended up making up her book Talk. The form was radical then and since has become a cult classic. It's a pretty incredible read if you can get your hands on a copy. It was recently republished by the New York Review of Books. In one of her next projects, she had the idea to ask some of her friends to write down everything they did one day. Another audio project. Basically, from the time they woke up to the time they went to bed, in all its detail and minutia. That's what she was interested in. One of her friends was the photographer Peter Hujar, and he agreed to take up Linda on her assignment. He could have picked any other day, but it so happens that the one he chose, he ends up going to photograph Allen Ginsberg for the New York Times... An editor from French Ellen, her way back to Paris, comes over. I remember in their conversation at one point, Peter says something like, you know, I never really feel like I do anything in a day, but I'm realizing how much I actually do. And Linda responds, well, you know, that's why I'm doing this. I feel like a lot of people feel that way, and that's maybe why the project resonates so much. Anyway, I could say a lot about what I love about the conversation, how rich it is from different standpoints. But uh, check it out. I think you'll enjoy it. You can order the book on our website. But for now, I hope you enjoyed this interview that I did with the master herself. We recorded it in the valley in L.A. where she's been living for the past 35 years. I somehow found myself once on the phone with Leonard Cohen, who was with a friend of mine at the Chelsea Hotel. And she, she put him on the phone and he said that he read talk, and he read the whole thing out loud to himself, and that he had tried to do something like that once and decided it couldn't be done. And he said, you did it, and you haven't gotten the recognition that that it deserves. Mm. That was the original, the 68 edition. How did you have the idea for talk in the first place? It just came to me in a flash. I rented a house in East Hampton for the summer, and I thought... I should take a tape recorder and, and tape the summer. I don't know if I had the idea that it would be a book at that moment. Did you realize how crazy it was at the time to think of having that much material? I mean, that much tape recorded material? Well, of course, Warhol at the same time was doing his book. And the difference being that he didn't edit it. You know, he just let it go and put it out as it was. And mine was heavily edited. You know, it was, in the end, it was like something like 1,500 pages, single-spaced transcript. It took me a year to transcribe it with, you know, from a heavy reel-to-reel tape recorder. First of all, I mean, I'm, whenever I think of, of you transcribing that much tape over a year, it's like, it seems completely crazy to me. I mean, transcribing, if anyone has ever done it, is an extremely hard activity. It's it's not as easy as it seems. Right. I mean, I these interviews I don't transcribe, but I, I had to recently for something. And I think it took me, uh, it was like, it was something like an hour for every 10 minutes or something. Yeah, absolutely. You had modern equipment, too. <laughs> this this was not. A reel-to-reel tape recorder 
how does it work exactly? How do you how do you use it? What's the setup? There's two reels, and you thread them across, and um, and it starts rolling. What more can I? You know, I <laughs> I recently got one on eBay, huh. thinking I would play the tapes, and I haven't done it. But I I have one that's just as big and just as awkward. With talk, I also had a more portable one that I took to the beach. Mm-hmm. I've been doing these interviews for quite a while, and there's something about the interview form that I've always just loved. I mean, I love listening to interviews, watching them. The interview, I feel like, is so much part of your practice and part of your life. Well, my novel talk, I don't consider interviews. But after that, Mm -hmm. I did a book where I um, invited ex-boyfriends over for dinner, one by one. And didn't exactly interview them, but the whole evening was taped. And they read sort of as, in a way, interviews. But the Peter Ujar thing was... A form of interview, I guess. Right. Do you consider, do you consider them interviews? Is that an interview? I think so. I think it's an interview. I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, I think an interview is just someone asking someone else questions and a person responding. Or it's, or it's a conversation. Yeah, that was a conversation. I wasn't asking questions. The, the other book that I mentioned before with the boyfriends was a horror story because... That summer, I had rented a house in Woodstock, and it was a very sort of lonely house up against a mountain. And here I was spending the summer replaying all my past bad relationships. And so what would you do? I remember for that project, you were telling me you'd invite ex-boyfriends over. Yeah, and I would turn it on when they came to the door and turn it off when they left. What were the meals? The first one was, I was trying to make it a very Jewish, home, homey, mm. pot roast dinner. The second one was duck, a little more sophisticated, a little, it, it worked better. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Jewish pot roasty meal, huh? Did your, did your mom used to make that? My mom was not the best cook, but mm. I guess she made, yeah. I associate it more with an aunt, an aunt, an aunt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it is it, sort of the ultimate Jewish homey dish, I think. Right? Did you was your house growing up a very kind of very Jewishy house? No, mm-hmm. no. I mean, there was no religious practice. They went to synagogue once a year. Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, I was very much a Bronx girl, mm-hmm. and it was a very Jewish milieu. I mean, you know. In my school, maybe there were two people who weren't Jewish. Mm-hmm. Jewish day school. No, no, it was public school, but oh, it was yeah. but it was ninety percent Jewish. Right, right, right. You know, my grandparents were very they practice they practice in Jewish, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but my parents really weren't. What about culturally? Like, would you do Passover? Well, the same aunt, pot roast aunt did. <laughs> she did Passover, uh-huh. and I, I was very close to her. She was a great supporter of talk, even though it couldn't have been further from her realm. So there's talk, and then the Day in the Life series, which is what our book is from, and then then you had 
X, which X. Were those the three recording endeavors? Was there anything else? I think that was it. Now, what else were you doing at the time? You worked at... I was full-time at the time, mm. all the way through, mm-hmm. at uh, Park Burnett Galleries, which, an auction galleries, which became part of Sotheby's. It became Sotheby's. I started a little magazine while I was there called Auction. Yeah. But the great thing about it was, at that time, there were no auctions in the summer. So I had the whole summer off at half pay, and... Often I went to, that's how I got to be able to rent these houses and spend summers in London sometimes. Mm. So it it was a great job in that way. That's what you do? Every summer you'd rent a house somewhere and go live there? No, just just three summers I did that. Mm -hmm. And then when auctions started, there was more reason to go to London and work with the Sotheby's people there. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't all work. Mm-hmm. That's that's where I spent time with Kitai because he lived in London. Sounds so exciting, starting a magazine and working there. There's something very, uh, very ro- romantic about that world the the world of auctions. It was pretty mundane, really. <laughs> <laughs> like things usually are. The yeah, things that seem yeah. very kind of sexy, or I guess it was exciting a little bit in a way. Mm. I mean. Better than a lot of other jobs I could have had. How long did you do auction for? I think it was five years. Mm-hmm. It ended in 72. and But that was fun because when it was taken over by this other firm, they they took me out of the Sotheby building and rented me this great office in, on 57th Street. A friend, Tony Shafrazi, who later became infamous for the Guernica episode in in Museum of Modern Art and then became a successful dealer. He's Iranian, and he painted the walls of this office in this fantastic purples and blues, and and I had a very good time doing that magazine. And he was the one that also introduced you to your husband, right, to Chris? It's correct, yes. He, he knew my husband, Christopher Finch, in London. They were good friends. When he came over to America, he said, you have to meet this friend of mine. He has to start writing for your magazine. Christopher Finch, great guy. And finally I did. And you were telling me one of the first things you did is you sent him out on assignment. You sent him to go interview Salvador Dali, right? That's right, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which he found quite a bizarre experience Mm -hmm. because Dali had all these wild animals and he said to Chris, who at that time had a droopy mustache, um, you remind me of Edgar Allan Poe, you're going to commit suicide. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't happened. <laughs> Fortunately. <laughs> Didn't you also get him to, did, he, he designed one of the, was it the first issue? He, he designed the cover, right? He did do a cover. For, it wasn't the first issue, but it was one of the first more glamorized second phase of the magazine. Yeah, he did. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to my conversation with Linda Rosencrantz that we recorded in L.A. We just published her new book, Peter Hujar's Day, 
which you can order on our website at magichourphoto.org. We have our first event for for the book tomorrow, for the for the book launch. How do you feel about it all? How are you feeling? Well, this whole thing has been just such a gift. I feel like it's another gift from Peter to me that people responded to this. It's something I never could have anticipated. And I love the book. I love the way it looks. You've just done such an elegant, beautiful job with it. The whole thing felt like a real collaboration. I mean, first of all, it was my friend Marcelo Yanez who found the piece. A million thank yous to him. Um, And then working on this has just been, I mean, Francis and I have really been working on it completely together and collaboratively. It's been, I think, the best experience I've had in publishing. And that goes back a long way. You know, it, it, on the one hand, it seems like we've been working on it in such a for such a short short amount of time, only since since April. But there's also at the same time, there's so many decisions that yeah. go into that go into a book that are subtle but make a big difference. Whether it's like editorial or design, how the thing is going to look, what to include, what not to include all these different little things when that happens it's just that that's also a real gift because just the four of us working together me you francis and steven it's just been such a pleasure and so smooth the fact that it was so collaborative and joyful i mean we our conversations were so much fun actually every week mm-hmm. and um it's been a lifesaver because it came in a time in my life where i have a lot of a lot of stuff going on this was like a beam of light in my life it's just been extraordinary i gotta tell you when i first came across the piece i thought to myself i i mean i thought to myself if i ever do anything with publishing i would love to do something with this like this could be an incredible an incredible little book but i also was totally inspired by it well that's so nice to hear Yeah. yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like it's two friends sort of just like uh, almost gossiping or talking about Wednesday, but there's such a, a detail to it that makes it so interesting. Yeah, I agree. And and the intimacy comes through to the friendship. Right. Even though I don't say much, you can tell that I'm perfectly comfortable saying anything to him. Right, right. One thing interesting about that tape is, is the people that he was talking to on the phone were people I never met. Because he was very consciously separating the different aspects of his life. And I felt that I was sort of the domestic side, maybe the only one. I don't know if he knew any many people with children. He would come over for dinner, say, and then at a certain point he would leave and you know, go out to his other life, go out cruising or whatever. So I, I, I had a distinctive role, I think, mm-hmm. um, and he was very comfortable, you know, in both. Yeah, you do hear this. Almost everyone says this. They talk about how yeah. he compartmentalized his life and his friendships. Very interesting. Well, he said that to me. I don't like people from one period of my life going into the the other. I don't know quite why. I mean, there was one time where there was somebody that he wanted me to meet, thinking that we could be friends, but that was so unusual. And it didn't come to be. I didn't follow through on it. But yeah, I've never met Fran Lieberwitz, who was such a close friend of his. Mm. You know, and other people. 
And yeah, Stephen has said the same thing. It's like he felt like he was he was his closest friend, but he never met. Yeah, also, I mean, this one and that one, and those people have said the same things. I did get to meet his mother. I think I'm the only person who met his mother, which was quite an experience. The general consensus was that his mother was this horrible harridan, you know, who threw things at him and who uh, mocked him. I mean, I have letters where he refers to her as Rosie. Her name was Rose Murphy, her, her second marriage name. And it certainly was not with any hatred, the way people see it. I, he probably gave me a gift to bring her from uh, Florence. And so I took the subway way up to the tip end of the Bronx, met to the apartment of her and her husband, known as Snooky, to all. I don't even know what his... I guess his real name is on Peter's portrait of them, but but he was Snooky to, to all. And he was sitting there in his undershirt drinking beer. They had these huge dogs. It was a small apartment. I don't remember if they were Great Danes or Mastiffs, but huge, two of them, referred to as the girls. And they talked in a very sweet and generous way about Peter and Joe, even saying, gee, it would be great if they could find an apartment. When they get back, they could find an apartment near us in the Bronx. You know, it just was such a different image than than it's being painted now. And there are even, I think, two, possibly three occasions where Rose Murphy came to have lunch with me at Sotheby's, outside of Sotheby's, and she was all dressed up with a little, with gloves and a little hat. That's another instance where I find the image of Peter, that Peter was this, you know, self-defeating, angry person. I, I have seen flashes of the anger, but it certainly wasn't, who he was in in essence, I don't think. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though because almost uh, I feel that he was uh, he was a complex person. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it's interesting hearing different accounts of his personality and characteristics from different people. It almost it it almost makes sense. It's just like it's it's just like you would of anyone who is who's a complex person. Yeah. yeah. I think he more than most, more more complex than most people. Um, I think Stephen is somebody who saw both sides, but and Vince probably too. You know, maybe a lot of people did, but um, but a lot of people just saw one side. And of course, in the last part of his life, after he got AIDS, he he was really an angry person, and I did see him throwing things and yelling at people, telling them to leave and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But that that was the disease, I speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you remember when he moved into his place on 2nd Avenue? Not specifically. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I wonder if we... No, I, I'm just thinking, I wonder if we should talk about... Because we only ended up including... Um, all those photos of the of the of the loft. Yeah. yeah. The, the the two pictures in the book. Yeah. Well, it's what's very strange is that 
those pictures are not the, the memory I have of that place. I, I saw it much more bare, and I don't remember a piano even. So, But that's, um, I, I think Gary Schneider was telling Francis the same thing the other day. Is that, yeah, his memory also is a much more, uh, I think you use the word acerbic kind of space. Yeah. But, um, but. Did Peter take those pictures? He took those pictures, yeah. Yeah. So obviously, he, I mean, he didn't move a piano in for the pictures, mm. so. But there's a piano and a harpsichord. The harpsichord I remember. Right. Because he played it. I mean, I don't even remember comfortable chairs there. We just sat mm. at the table, usually, the, on, on hard kitchen chairs the blue table yeah the famous blue table yeah <laughs> i think the reason that i wanted to to mention it is because there's such a an interesting thing in relation to photography and in relation to how peter took photos is that oftentimes when you look at a picture you you think that you're looking at reality it looks so real but a, a picture there's a transformation and there's yeah. this ability that certain people have to make things look the way that they see them or the way that they yeah, are able to make them true. look. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But how how does that relate to this, do you think? I think it just relates to it because it's like the space, the in, the photos look very romantic in a way. And elegant. Yeah. And it wasn't an elegant space. <laughs> it, it was a very basic. I mean, and okay, so... It is, if you describe, like some people, some friends of mine who've seen that, those photos and like know where it is, like on Second Avenue in the East Village, this like beautiful loft with these like arched windows in the East Village. He makes the windows look so fantastic. (laughs) Well, they were wonderful windows, but, you know, I never saw them that way, Mm -hmm. the way he saw them that day. It was so interesting also as we were working on the book. Um, we'd have our weekly meetings every week at Stephen, me, you, Francis, and Stephen. And I remember one time when we were talking about these pictures, you and Stephen started talking about where the bed was placed. And um, I remember your memory of it was in the corner and his memory of it was in, wait, was it next to the, it was like in, in the middle of the room or something, or it was like a difference in, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's possible the bed moved, you know, from one one sometimes moves furniture. But I I, I pictured it against the wall. As you guys were talking about it, the conversation of where the beds were placed sort of turned into weight. I remember giving Peter a set of sheets one time, and they were definitely twin sheets. Or wait, maybe they were Chloe's sheets from when she was a kid. But what I'm getting at is that I remember it sparked this memory of giving him sheets and then and then that turned into being at Peter's last birthday party and Chloe, this last birthday party when he... he crawled into bed with him mm-hmm. to sort of comfort him. And, she, you know, she was quite young. Mm. Because he couldn't get out of bed. I think he was in bed the whole time. He mm. He was... It was his last birthday. He was sick. I mean, that that might have been an occasion where I did meet some people from his other other life. Mm-hmm. But the thing with the sheets was that Peter was so penniless. I mean, he was so poor that you know, when I if I was getting new sheets, I would give him 
the old sheets, you know, and it was with towels. I mean, he couldn't conceive of going out and having the money to buy sheets or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea that his work is starting to sell well, is it's so sad to me that when he died, I mean, I was sort of running around trying to buy, trying to sell some of his prints for like $250 or something, you know, just so he'd have a little money. I mean, it's a tragedy in that way. Mm. And yet, I think he sort of foresaw in a little, he, he thought he might be famous someday. I mean, at, he thought he'd be famous when he was alive, but I think he could he could picture this happening in a way. And Stephen has just done such a fabulous job with the archive and selling, you know, getting museum shows and the show at the Morgan was so influential, I think. Yeah, he's really the best. I mean, he's really done such a great job with it all. And off the record, I mean, has he told you how he would always have dreams of Peter's criticizing him and saying he wasn't doing it well at the beginning? I don't, even think that, I don't even think that's off the record. I think he wrote it. I remember reading oh, about okay. that. In... Yeah, he felt that, that Peter had his eye on him and was watching him and that he was failing at the very beginning because it didn't take off immediately. But now, I don't think he even has dreams about him anymore. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he's done a wonderful job. He really has. I mean, Stephen's been a beacon in my life too because he wrote the introduction to the New York Review book reprint of talk and it was actually through him that the book that talk got to them so steven is my good luck charm yeah and even in this project i mean he's just been so into it and supportive along the way not only for the for the the book itself which he's just been so enthusiastically involved with but just in terms of um sort of my publishing uh, endeavors also and you know this is for me it's it's a totally new thing I'm learning as I'm going but he's really been um, a big mentor and and a help along the way and just yes yeah, super generous with it all and yeah just really really appreciate it yeah me too <laughs> thanks Stephen thanks Stephen <laughs> um, alright I think this is a good note to end on thanks so much for doing this with me Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Linda. That's good. Yeah. That was my conversation with Linda Rosencrantz that we recorded in L.A. This episode is produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Ellen Payne-Smith. Original music for the show by Adam Feingold. To find out more about the show and the new books that we recently published, visit us at magichourphoto.org and on Instagram at magichourpodcast. We're really excited about the new books. Got some great conversations coming up. So stick around. Thanks so much for tuning in and see you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 